to be joking. You've got to be joking. Now, when the treasurer wishes oh, to go no. there or not, I would forbid him going. Forbid him going to the Senate. To, uh, to uh, account this unrepresentative swell over there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Unrepresentative Soul Podcast. My name is Nick. Rob, great to have you here. Oh, as always, mate. I haven't seen you much this weekend. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, nothing. Just doing a lot of hard work, a lot of study, rigorous academic research, that kind of thing. So, Well, we know you're a liar. Yeah, me and Nick have just got back from a pretty boozy weekend, away without close personal friends. So, we haven't been, you know, as, as, as switched on to everything that's happening as much as we usually are yeah absolutely rob is also bonded. sick yeah if you if if i do sound a bit nasally I, I apologize yeah so it will be a bit of a shorter episode this week but we still have a lot of exciting stuff to dive into as well absolutely nick I, i'm so excited for it but first i gotta ask you you know you know what'd you get up to do you enjoy your weekend etc i feel really refreshed i actually had a really relaxing time it was a bit boozy, but, you know, we went for a few walks, went to a few wineries. Really enjoyed myself, actually. I, after a real tough assignment period, I, f- I feel really good, Rob. How about you? Well, obviously, I'm a little... <laughs> don't feel quite refreshed, as you put it. Um, Yeah, I think alcohol won, won the weekend against yeah. me. I'd, that's tough, mate. Yeah. Well. You know? well, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Your immune system is going to come back stronger, so... Mm-hmm. Not sure if it really works that way when you're putting poison into your body, but... It is poison. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, we do have an exciting episode. Nonetheless, Rob, we're going to take you through the Canadian election and also the German election. Double up on the elections, eh? Double up. Two really exciting elections, actually, and really interesting outcomes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Super interesting to analyze as well. But we'll we'll run through some news headlines real quick as well for you, Rob. Main one last week was from the Melbourne anti-lockdown protests. Yeah, they seem to getting get a little more intense as uh, each protest goes on. Remember, yeah. it started with punching a horse, and now it's you know get somehow getting past that, which and is some bizarre. Really weird moments. I don't know if you saw this, Rob, but they kind of assembled on a bridge at one point and started singing "Horses." You know that song, "Horses." I don't know. I can't remember who it's by. It's a bit of a for some reason. Daryl Braithwaite. Yeah, for some reason, a, a token Australian song. I don't really know why. But they Australia. started singing that song. Um, some really weird moments like that. And then, of, of course, so Sally McManus, the head of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, which is the peak body for all the unions, uh, has said basically that far-right groups are infiltrating the union movement and these different unions and co-opting what was a more reasonable protest about the specificity of restrictions and when they're going to end uh, and really co-opting them to come out against lockdowns and mask wearing. Yeah, uh, I did see that. I saw all the, um, like, uh, Batoot Advocate and meme posts being like, you know, far right, you know, neo-Nazi drops off his tradie kit at op shop after he's bought it two hours earlier, etc., etc. And now that far right movements have infiltrated the union movement, does that mean we get, you know, some more royal commissions into union corruption or... What happens now, right? Probably not, though. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Done. Unions have never been corrupt anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. Uh, it's an interesting tactic. I, I think you've seen some of that kind of stuff in the US as well with a lot of protest movements, infiltration and co-opting from super far-right groups. And that kind of shows that 
that really weird intersection between things like the labor movement and the union movement, which are like pro-freedom of workers, the people on the lower side of, you know, just people aren't rich really. The intersection of that and a lot of like far right-wing um, kind of like scare campaigning issues. Yeah, I do want to, you know, I hate to do this, but I want to commend a lot of right-wing parties for somehow making workers their, like, one of their key target demographics now. Yeah. Like, what's going on there, right? Yeah, well, because those, some of those far right-wing groups have no base in, like, economic policy at all, really, or any kind of conception of, of who their voter is, like, and where their position in the economy is. So I, it all gets very lost and very confusing when you realize that, like, for a far right-wing party, the people who are voting for them are, tend to be poorer, but they're voting directly against their economic interests. It's a bit strange. A truly bizarre times we're living in, Nick. Do, do you think these will continue or anything of that nature? Not sure. I guess we'll have to wait. Victoria is slowly opening up, so mm. there's that. Um, I don't think the protest actually gained anything, Rob. Um, the Victorian surprise, government surprise. was pretty, pretty clear that the restrictions would say as they were. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully not because things got a bit violent as well. There are a lot of police deployed and you get scared that something bad will happen. Speaking of um, news that's hot off the press in it, New South Wales recorded, I believe, 700 cases today and they've released a roadmap to uh, get out of lockdown. Yeah, well, I think they hit 60% full vax uh, recently. So, they're yeah. going to be 70% very soon. And I saw um, Australia as a country is catching up to all nearly on par with the US in terms of vaccination rates. Yeah. Um, so Which there you great. go. We're getting very closer and closer. And watch Scotty roll out and just claim it, you know? <laughs> oh, he will. I've he done will. so great, guys. This vaccine got to us just as quickly as it did in the US, you know. But we all know that's a lie. Supply is still an issue. I think just about everyone in Australia wants a vaccine at this point still. Yeah, I, I mean, it raises also really uh, difficult problems with Mark McGowan as well. Is he going to maintain his hardlines policy that no one can come back until there's 70% vaccinations in Australia from, say, New South Wales? That is, I, I, I really think there'll be so much pressure coming on to him in the coming months about that. So I'll have to see if he sticks to that. Yeah, we'll have to see to him. And we've seen that Mark McGowan's not really that afraid of changing his position on COVID. I think he really he really likes to present himself as like the ultra pragmatic, um, you know, always worried about health first, COVID, you know, chairman Mao, cult of personality that he is. I don't know why I kept going down that rabbit hole, but <clears throat> I think he just always like wants to talk about how pragmatic he is at dealing with this COVID situation above all else, really. Yeah. So, you know, he could change his mind, but who knows, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, well, why don't we go into the Canadian election then? Yeah, the Canadian election. Um, Canada shares a lot of similarities with Australia. There's got a, there's got a significant mining industry there, so I think it's always interesting to look at Canada Canadian politics because it can sometimes it's like a little bit more left wing Australia, yeah. and they smoke heaps of weed in there. Yeah, so you know, I think progressive on on a few more of those issues, maybe based on their proximity to the US really, and the part of the Democratic Party there, that tradition kind of rubs off on them. But yeah. um, what's happened in this election, Rob? Well, um, so Trudeau called this election, I believe, a couple of months ago now. Um, basically, his, uh, and that was an early call as well. And people were mad about that early call. People were very mad. So basically, Canada also has a wash system like us. 
um, which means that um, the prime minister is like, you know, the leader of the country rather than there's a president that's separate. Yeah, so they have member parliament. And um, in in Washington system, you you know have elections every three or four years, depending on what part of the world you're in. And you have the, the prime minister has the right to call the election early. And so he's done this, and basically the reason why is because he was in a hung he had a hung parliament, and he wanted to increase his majority and gain an absolute majority. Now, Nick, did he do that? No, no, as, as often happens, circa Theresa May. 2015. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, nice. Good good throwback yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh so yeah, he's gained two seats which um you know, not huge. Not not the best and I think it speaks to the um how annoyed people were about the early call. Yeah. And especially now that basically nothing has happened. And uh, people are, you know, his opposition is stressing the huge cost of this election, especially in COVID times. Well, I think 600 million is the number I yeah. keep seeing on this. Yeah, 600 million. So 600 million bucks for basically two sh- two seats to change hands. People are pissed off. And who knows, right? It, a lot of people are saying like, you know, why can prime ministers even call elections early in this Washminster system? Maybe that's just a Canada-specific question. But I wanted to pose it to the audience and to you, Nick. Do you think uh, a right to call an early election is really warranted in modern political landscape? No, I actually think that the fixed terms where it's on a set date every three or four years is actually really good because it prevents the incumbent party from having that advantage of being able to call it whenever they want. It just doesn't really make sense why they should have that advantage, um, really. And you don't want to see them, you know, you want to see them prioritizing the best policy for the country within the time frame they're given, not trying to strategize around policy and budget times and then elections and things. I tend to agree with you, Nick. I think um, an exception should be like crisis times. Uh, and maybe you can call an election in a crisis to shore up a majority, maybe, potentially. And maybe some people might stretch that and say COVID's a crisis. So Trudeau had every right. But broadly speaking, I don't think he did have the right. Yeah, and the consensus is that he didn't. And people are very mad. But he is still in power, and he's been quite successful up to this date. He's Justin Trudeau has been incumbent for how long, Rob? Since twenty fifteen. So twenty fifteen. So if he serves till twenty twenty five, which is when the next election is called, if he doesn't, if he waits to the last possible moment to call it, he'll be the longest serving prime minister in Canadian history, actually. And that's that's quite crazy. And and he is quite an impressive political figure, and he's made a, a quite an impressive career. He was um, kind of the young upstart uh, challenger that people really didn't think could actually do this in 2015 and challenge the then incumbent Conservative Party in Canada. Well, I believe it was Stephen Harper, in, in the Prime Minister of Canada before that. Yeah, great call, Rob. I think that's correct. And I, I think he like ostensibly tried to make this quite progressive agenda in 2015. And I think for progressives, there's a lot of points that he's not always cracked up to be on things like climate change. And again, they face that, con- that that problem of a lot of natural resources in Canada. And what do you do about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Stephen Harper was prime minister before that. So pat on the back to me. Um, and I want to say in 2015, when Trudeau actually ran for, par- uh, for prime minister for the first time, a lot of the conservative narrative around him was this guy is, you know, running just on his name. He's, you know, a no-brained idiot. Like he's really stupid. And we just need to put a policy forward that's good. And eventually Trudeau will have to speak and he's not going to just be this really hot guy and he's going to lose away. But I think, you know, in, to Trudeau's credit, despite of all the climate change and stuff, 
he's clearly proven to be a, a charismatic leader, at least. But I do, I do very much enjoy your point about uh, climate policy in these uh, for progressive parties in these countries that have natural resources, and you see it in Australia, especially with the McGowan government right now. And you, you can see a lot of similarities actually. Between we talked these about two. that before McGowan and his his closest to Woods companies like Woodside. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting to see that you know juxtaposition between the progressive social policies that you see pushed a lot. Yeah. And then the like backwards, you know, environmental policies. Yeah, or really just um, kind of not, uh, towing the line on a lot of those policies. And I believe also Trudeau has uh, a lot of, uh, he had a lot of other scandals and things over the years. I can't get into all of them, obviously, but he will be around for the next um, little bit longer. But I want to say that the Conservative Party ran on a very like um, moderate policy base in a hope that they can, you know, dethrone this goliath now in canadian politics in trudeau through you know basically being just just right of him and that way they'd still claim all those rural seats that they still claim and they get a pinch of few uh, city seats they actually lost two seats so um increasingly uh, these conservative parties are losing their ability to win any seats in cities at all so you know look out for the next australian election and see if that trend continues uh and maybe it uh, Hopefully, in my case, anyways, it's a constant trend. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're seeing similarities around there, all across the world, in Germany um, as, as well. And so, Germany had their election this week, just just on the weekend. And the the big deal was that Angela Merkel, who'd been in power since 2005, which is insane, uh, was stepping down, and she's been the most successful. German politician, German chancellor ever. And by all accounts, is just really a, a really strong, successful politician um, who should be looked up to. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, by the way. <clears throat> you know, uh, 12 years in... in No, 16, 15, 16, 16 years. years. yeah. 16 years in charge of a country. Very, very impressive. You know, for context, Australia's prime minister was John Howard. The president of the United States was George Bush. Yeah. Uh, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister of the UK. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. So, you know, it's it, just this longevity in, a lo- in and of itself should be applauded. Um, but Nick, you know, as is the case in politics, there's always, it's a moving juggernaut. It always moves forward. So it is. What's happening now in Germany? So they had an election on Sunday and uh, Angela Merkel's party, the CDU, um, which is basically the Germany centre-right party, Really disappointing shout-out for them. Um, and I think some people expected this without the successful figure that was Angela Merkel really doing well for them every election. Uh, they actually dropped to the lowest percentage of the vote they've ever had at 24%. And they've actually been edged out by the SPD, which is the um, center-left party in Germany with, I think, like 26% of the vote or something. But like Canada, um, still minority governments. So there'll be... a months of tense uh, coalition talking uh, with the Green Party, the Greens Party, as the power brokers between those two major parties in Germany. And I think, Rob, what is most pro- most likely here is a coalition between the Greens Party and the SPD, the centre-left. So that'll be a big change in German politics, um, having been governed by that centre-right party for a long time. Yeah, um, that'll be very interesting to see. Do you think... Um this has any implications for the EU, particularly surrounding climate change policy, because 
the fact that the greens are such a big power broker is pretty important for this one. Right? Well, the interesting thing, Rob, is that, and you know, this is a credit to just Angela Merkel as well and some of her super pragmatic um, and you know, less ideological politics. Germany had already been doing very well on climate policy, was really pushing a strong renewable energy investment into Germany itself and other parts of the EU. Uh, so Germany was already doing very well. And interestingly, the position for both major parties on climate is actually pretty similar. So kind of net neutral by 2045 is their aim. Obviously, the Greens have a more ambitious target than that. So you may see a bit more of a progressive climate policy come in. But I mean, credit to Angela Merkel, they were already kind of on the way. And in Germany, the consensus had shifted to a pro-climate change agenda. Very, very different to our own country where we're even trying to get a position on net neutral at all in the coalition. Yeah. Um, again, credit to German politics in general that this is not a political issue, climate change, which it shouldn't be, by the way. Um, so, yeah, credit on that front. But... I really, I want to know, Nick, is a change in leadership usually leads to a change in policy. Do you know any of the, you know, SPD's uh, policies and how they tried to, you know, beat the um, the Merkel, yeah, <laughs> the CDU, in um, through policy basically. Yeah, the, I think the biggest one of the biggest differences, Rob, you'll see is around fiscal policy. Um, the SPD really want to be a bit more ambitious about lending and investing as well. Whereas, um, and also raising taxes and so as well do the Greens. But the CDU really found, I think, a lot of strength in their support around uh, committing to not increasing taxes and also fiscal responsibility, which is a bit similar to what we see with, say, Australia's centre-right party. Um, I think Germany actually has some pretty strict uh, regulation on how much you can borrow as a government and also for provinces as well. Um, so you see a much more ambitious policy, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast as we think is generally good from the SPD centre-left party. But on, a, on many other issues, Rob, it's remarkable how similar they are. So if you look at immigration broadly, Angela Merkel was famous in uh, 2015 in response to the European migrant crisis of having a let-them-in policy and you know just generally applauded by so many people across the world progressive people and also people with a lot of knowledge in the area a huge boost to the german economy for all those workers because germany famously the industrial powerhouse of europe and many and all the parties still want it to be that way as well um so i think you'll see some differences on how particularly they deal with the administration of stuff like immigration but broadly there's no you know they have the far right i think afd party in germany who uh against immigration naturally, but Angela Merkel has also done really well to push that into the political mainstream of Germany. Yeah. Um, I do. I, I think uh, the reason, maybe maybe this might be a bit juvenile of me, Nick, but I think I know the, somewhat the reason why the parties seem to be so similar and so central as well is because obviously German history has made it very difficult to run on nationalist style of politics, which is what right-wing parties generally... Um, move towards and basically the, the CDU particularly under Merkel would never do any nationalistic acts I saw a, um, a video once of some you know idiot from the CDU waving a German flag and Merkel's like ripped the flag out of his hand and like thrown it away saying like no we don't do that right 
which I thought was you know very bold, right? Definitely, and she had that experience of growing up in East Germany and seeing you know the danger of authoritarianism and nationalism firsthand, and I think that really speaks to her pragmatism um, and her commitment to like the integrity of politics as well, which is something that will be sorely missed, especially in the EU as well. She's she had done you know, had, you know contributed to great strides in the EU um, for building up the coalition and making the union stronger in many different ways, Rob. Um, and that will be a huge hole left to fill, which Emmanuel Macron from France is actually positioning himself basically to take over from Merkel. But still, will be a huge loss for the EU. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Is there anything more on the EU you'd like to talk about, Nick? Or No, not really. I mean, it would be interesting to see what... Yeah, Germany will have broadly a similar approach um, as they historically have with the EU, which is your know, pro, um, pro-EU uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, Rob. Obviously, we've talked about the EU before and its many issues that it faces, especially between uh, wealth disparity between the North and the South. Yeah. But I, I feel like that is a good uh, summary of both those elections. Really important elections, really interesting elections as well. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. Uh, agree more. Hopefully, we have our own election next year. We will have our own election next year in Australia. Yeah. Interesting to see if we see some of the same trends running against centre-right parties. Yeah. And and it's great that we're having our own election next year, Nick, because we thought it was going to happen this year at the start of this year. Yeah. Um, so but thank you, Christian Porter, for that. Um, yeah. Christian Porter, who, by the way, hasn't still hasn't revealed who his, um, who his blind trust is. So Good. That should be default for any politician, but apparently not. This guy is the former attorney general. <laughs> anyway, Rob, let's not end on a sour note. Yeah, um, let's. Let's just end it here. Um, thank you for listening. We'll be back with a more comprehensive episode next week. Hopefully, Rob is feeling much better. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, and obviously, don't forget to follow us on our socials at Underrepresentative Swill on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and at Swill Podcast on Twitter. See you next week. See you next week.